If you could turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 29, we're going to look at verses 4 through 14. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 14. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 10, Jeremiah receives a call from the Lord. And the Lord told him, he says, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. The first part of Jeremiah, the first 27 chapters, is all about, we see Jeremiah fulfilling that call. He's fulfilling a call to pluck up. And in Jeremiah chapter 29, we see he's about to fulfill another part of that call. That part of that call is to plant. It's to plant. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 14. Today we're going to look at the subject. It's not about me. It's about the welfare of our city. The welfare of our city. The precious, authentic, sufficient, inerrant, wonderful, magnificent, powerful word of God reads. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all nations and all places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word, for truly it is holy, truly it is good. And Father, I pray that as we continue this series, that you will remind us that You do not ultimately exist for us, that we exist for you, that you have birthed us, that you have called us for a purpose. And you, Father God, the God of this universe, who is not just beautiful, but who is beauty, who is not just lovely, but who is love, that you want to know us and that you have plans for us, Father God, a great future if we put our faith and trust in your son. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
if you had two prophets standing before you, and somehow you knew that they, uh, that one of them was telling the truth and the other wouldn't, wasn't, uh, which prophet would you believe? Would you believe the prophet that came with really good news, a good message about your future, that if found to be true would satisfy you immediately, it would satisfy your longings and your desires, or would you rather believe a, 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 a rather weird or peculiar message that would leave you with more questions than answers? I think it's safe to say that most of us this morning would rather believe and be more inclined to believe some really good news that will immediately satisfy our desires and longings. This is the situation that Israel is in. They are in exile, away from Jerusalem, away from the city of God, the city of Zion, away from the place that God had promised and delivered them. They have been stripped from their homeland by Babylon, by King Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon was a a world power at that time. It was a a unique city. It was a very diverse city, uh, easily compared to a a New York or a a Las Vegas. It It was the most happening place on the face of the earth. And the Jews had been taken from their homeland and put into this place because they, over time, refused to listen to God's warnings. They refused to turn their heart to God and to trust the God that called them out of Egypt. And rather than placing their trust in this God, they sought after other gods. They lived in idolatry. So God allowed their city to be ransacked. He allowed their precious temple to be ruined. He allowed their brightest leaders to be taken away. He allowed their economy to crash. All to get them to a place of surrender. So, They have two messages that's going on at this time. They're hearing some false prophets tell them one thing, and they're hearing a a true prophet tell them another. But let's, let's, let's get to their attitude. Let's get to what they would have been feeling as they heard these two messages. Let's turn to Psalms 137 really quickly. The 137th division of the psalm reveals how they felt about being in Babylon how they felt about being in exile, being separated from the city of God. Psalm 137 says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its fountains. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. 
Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. That's how the average Jew felt while they were in exile, apart from their land, held captive by a pagan king in a pagan city that worshipped pagan gods. And they had two messages before. The first message was pretty much summed up like this. Israel, God is capable of delivering you from Babylon. And it is his gracious desire to do so. And not only is he capable of doing it, but Israel, God is going to do it in two years. This was very appealing to the Israelites. They had not been in exile that long, and in two years already, God was somehow going to miraculously wipe out the most powerful nation on the face of the earth, and he was going to deliver his children from this land, and everything was going to be all right. The problem with that message is is that it has some truth in it, but it doesn't contain the whole truth. It is true that God is capable of delivering. And not only is he capable, but he is willing to deliver. We see this throughout history, and we especially see this in the cross of Christ, that God is a loving God, a long-suffering God, a patient and a gentle God, a merciful God who deeply, deeply, deeply loves his children and wants to be in communion with them. But they were wrong. These false prophets was wrong. Hananiah and Jeremiah chapter 28 was wrong. As he was preaching what the people wanted to hear. God was not about to deliver them in two years. What Israel wanted was a resurrection without a cross. They wanted the blessings of God. They wanted to see the power of God without admitting their sin and their need for God to forgive them. In the midst of this situation, we hear another message going forth. And this is the message of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the the weeping prophet who has spent most of this book, we see, warning uh, Israel of of what will happen. And once it happened, telling them a a peculiar message. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 4 through verse 7, we, we see this message. And this message is threefold. Number one, this message that Jeremiah is bringing is a message that is telling uh, Israel to settle down. He's telling them to settle down. Verse four, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Jeremiah comes with a completely different message, and that is chill out. This is your new life. This is your new home. God isn't about to deliver you in two years. Live life. 
But there's another part of this. The second part is, he says, seek the welfare of the city. Not only are you to settle down, but, verse 7, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. That's huge. That is not a popular message. We just read how the average Jew would have been feeling as they were in exile. But God tells Jeremiah to tell him, number one, settle down. Number two, seek Babylon's welfare. Do you know what that must have done to them? This nation that has just ripped us from our home, this nation that has just made us the laughing stock of the world, this nation who disrespected our king by pulling him down and putting up who they wanted in, in battle, this nation who took our brightest young kids and our sons and our daughters, and you're telling us to, to build a house and to seek its welfare? To them, God must have sounded like a bogus realtor. What does it mean to seek the welfare of the city? That word there, welfare, is the word... Uh, shalom, where we get the word peace from. And oftentimes when we think of the word uh, peace, we think of an inner calmness. But this word in the Hebrew, and even when peace is used in the Greek, it, it carries much more weight than just an inner calm. It's a more holistic word. It, it, it is a, a picture of total flourishing in every dimension of life. It is a picture of social, physical, and spiritual peace. Spiritual success. God is saying, while you're in Babylon, I want you to seek that city's peace. I want you to make sure that that city is flourishing, that that city socially, physically, and spiritually is better as a result of you being there. God was not surprised that they were there. After all, the Bible teaches us that God is the one who put them there. He's the one who raised up Nebuchadnezzar as an instrument of judgment against them. Not because he's some harsh, mean God, but because he is a loving God. He did not want them to continue to chase after false gods. Therefore, he disciplined them. What is God telling Israel here? He's telling them that as a result of the people of God being in this horrible city, the city should see transformation. The city should not be the same because my people are there. So he says, don't look at yourselves as exiles right now or as captives, excuse me, as as slaves right now. Look at yourselves as missionaries. But then he tells them to do something else. Not only do I want you to settle down, not only do I want you to seek the welfare of the city, the peace, the shalom of the city, but I want you to pray for the city. Look at what he says. For in his welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to their dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Let's skip down to verse 12 real quick. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. With all of your heart. 
So we see that God has given a promise that, that one day he will restore them, and he's telling them that will be the day that they, that they pray. But not only is he going to restore them when they, when they come back into him and, and pray, but in verse 7 it tells us that, that he is expecting them to pray while they're there and to pray for the city on its behalf. Now this is, this is huge because this is one of the only places in the Old Testament where we see God telling his people to pray for their enemies. He's saying, I want you to be praying for the social, spiritual, physical well-being of the city. Part of your mission while you're here is to be prayer warriors, praying that this city will flourish. And that's exactly what Jesus says, right, on the Sermon on the Mount when he tells us to pray for our enemies. Pray for our enemies. So we see something that is just just huge, uh, something that is unexpected, something that is probably very unpopular, and that's probably why the children of Israel continue to harden their hearts towards Jeremiah's message. But I want us to, to think about this for a second, what God did not say. Let's think about what God did not say. God did not come to them and say, Israel, while you are here, I want you to assimilate. He did not say that. To, he said, he did not come say, I want you to assimilate with the culture of Babylon. So assimilate means to conform to the culture of Babylon. It's to, to pick up their, their culture and their practices, to, to worship who they worship and to try to fit in. He does not tell them to fit in. The people of God are not supposed to conform to the image of the world. They're supposed to be transformed. They're supposed to stand out. So even in this text, when God tells them to take wives and, and build houses and, and, and have children, he's not tell, telling them to, to take Babylonian wives. He's not telling them to take foreign wives. No, he, he's telling them to marry amongst themselves and to still be the people of God. And while they're being the people of God, to seek the welfare of the city, he is not telling them to assimilate. Why? Because when a person assimilates, when he seeks to conform to a culture, normally they assimilate because they want to move upward. Because if you don't assimilate, if you don't look like everyone else in a city or everyone else in a culture, then you will stand out and you will probably be mocked and ridiculed. A person who does not assimilate and who does not look like everyone else is a person who probably won't get the best job. They'll probably be persecuted. But the person who assimilates, they assimilate because they are seeking acceptance. And because they, they want to go up the corporate ladder and they want to be like everyone else. Most people, when they assimilate, they do it for selfish reasons. And even Christians. We know that God has called us to be distinct. We know that God has set us aside to be his people. But sometimes peer pressure gets to us. And we want to look like everyone else and we want to walk like everyone else and we have a desire to talk like everyone else because we don't want to stand out. But God is not telling them to assimilate. Not, not only is God not telling them or, 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 or promoting assimilation, but God is not promoting tribalism. Tribalism is a, a mindset that says only be loyal to your people. God does not say in the midst of Babylon, I want you to build a fortress. In the midst of Babylon, I want this area of Babylon to be only where you go. And in the midst of Babylon, I only want you to support your restaurants, your stores, and your people. 
God does not tell them to build their own fortress he said, and, and be for themselves. He says, no, I don't want you to be for yourself. I want you to be for the city. I don't just want you to be in the city. The mindset of, of tribalism is once again a me-centered and a self-centered attitude. It's an attitude that says, I'm only going to look out for my kind. I'm only going to look out for those who are in my family. I only want to see my family successful. I only want to see uh, uh, my friends successful or, or my ethnicity successful. God is not telling them to have that attitude. He's telling them to have a radically different attitude. A radically different attitude. So what, what should be their motivation while in Babylon to help the city? What's going to motivate them? What's going to, to set their hearts on fire and to, to be obedient to the Lord? Well, verse 11 is the motivation. Their motivation to obey God in a pagan nation and to seek the welfare of that city is the very promise of God. Verse 11, he says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God is calling his people in the midst of this city not to live self-centered lives. And he is motivating them to live for the city. And what he uses to motivate them to live for the city is the future. He says, <laughs> I know something that you don't know. Where you're going, I've already been. He says, for I know the plans that I have for you. You are not here by mistake. If you remember Israel, I warned you that this would happen. Know that I am a God who uh, ultimately is sovereign and who is providential. I am a God who moves everything the way that I want it to be moved. And what is your future? He said it is a future of peace and not evil. It is a future of hope. The way that they were going to be obedient to the Lord was by standing on God's promise, by remembering that God is sovereign, that God is good, and that God has a future hope for them. And let's, let's unpack this future hope a little bit. In, in chapter 30, verse 3, listen to what God says. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people. Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers and they shall take possession of it. Verse 18, chapter, same chapter, verse 18 through 24. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound, and the places shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving, and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them, and they shall not be few. I will make them honored, and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old, and the congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all who oppress them. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come from their midst. I will make him draw near, and he shall approach me for who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. 
and you shall be my people and I will be your God. God motivates them in a foreign land. God encourages them in the midst of a dark, dark, bad situation. God tells them to rest and to be his people, to be missionaries while in exile. And he says, you can do this by faith because you have your hope on a future homeland. You have your hope on the fact that I will restore you and there will be one who will reign. And there will be songs of thanksgiving. There will be praises. You will look like Israel in your glory day. But then in chapter 31, verses 31 through 33, he says, not only will you look like Israel, like you used to in your glory day, but something magnificent is going to happen. Something that has never happened before. Something that you desperately need and you desperately desire, even though you don't know it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and say his brother saying know the Lord for they all will know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord God says one day not only am I going to put you back in your homeland but one day I'm going to give you a new heart a, a, a better heart a heart that is not a heart of stone but a heart that is a heart of flesh and you will worship me and you won't have to worry about going astray like you had, and being back in his position. So the promise of God was to be their motivation. As long as Israel lived with a a future hope, they will be able to live selfless lives and transform Babylon. There's a, a parallel here, isn't it? The Bible speaks of us as being, as Christians, as being God's people. And it often uses similar language. And and it calls us, the Bible calls us exiles and sojourners. Go to Peter with me. Let's go to First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. word of God reads, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and as exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against you. You hear that? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and what? And exiles. Just like Israel was exiled, so are we considered exiles. To abstain from the passions of the flesh, to not assimilate, to not look like the culture, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they speak against you as evildoers. They may see your good deeds and what? And glorify God on the day of visitation. Israel was to, was to still be a, a mission-minded people. They were to love the Lord. They were to seek the welfare of the city in order that the city will recognize their good deeds and give glory to God. God, even in the midst of their exile, was being, mission, was, was, was being a missionary. And God is saying the same thing as us. We are considered exiles. 
if we are Christians, Philip Rankin calls us uh, alien residents. As Christians, we are alien residents. We are aliens in the sense that this is not our home. The Bible says that we are just sojourners. We are just passing through. We are residents in that this is where God has us planted for now. We are alien residents and we shall live as a people who is not seeking to assimilate with the culture, who is not trying to tribalize them, themselves and their family, who's not living life for their own sake, but living life for the glory of God. That is the church. The church is to be a community that gets the attention of the world by seeking this city's welfare. As Forest Baptist Church, our goal must be to, to make Newburgh better. Our goal must be to see the shalom of God, the peace of God reign in Newburgh. It must be to see this city flourish, to see Louisville flourish, to see the social situations in this city better, to see the physical situation, to see the spiritual condition of this city better. It should be better as a result of us if we respond how God has called Israel in this text to respond and say, no, we will not assimilate. No, we will not tribalize. No, we will not live for ourselves. We will live for the one who has saved us. Exactly what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. He's saying you are the salt of the earth. You are, you are to be the main influent, influencers of the earth. But if those who are supposed to be influencing the world with godly living are being influenced. <laughs> How should it be of any good? He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and glorify your God in heaven. The goal of this church must be community transformation. If you're a member of this church, and if, if this is, is, is all you're expecting is for us to come and to worship on Sundays and worship on Wednesdays and to have a good time and build relationships and you think that that's the end goal of the church, you're wrong. If I think that, I'm wrong. The end goal, the end vision of this church is to radically move this community. St. Augustine and uh, the African theologian in his book, The Tale of Two Cities, he talks about the difference between two cities. He, he says in every city there is two cities. The one is the city of man and the other is the city of God. And he makes this distinction and he shows how in the city of man, in the city of man, the, the whole goal of the individuals that is in that city is personal progress. It's personal exaltation. And he says, this city of man, the, 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 the city that man has set up, the, the world system, it, it is all about personal progress. 
It's all about fulfilling oneself. But as a result of that, the city of man is constantly experiencing exhaustion, constantly experiencing brokenness, constantly experiencing bitterness, because everybody in that city is ultimately looking for themselves. They are, they are trying to climb and to get to the top. And they want to get to the top because they ultimately want to be glorified. And this is, this is how one who is separated from Christ looks. This is how their, their life looks. It is a constant battle. It is a constant struggle. It is a, a constant desire to be better for the sake of their own glory. And if you're honest here today and you don't know Jesus, it's exhausting. Because sometimes you have to push people out the way to get what you want. And sometimes people will push you out the way to get what they want. Tim Keller says that a a person who is in the city of man is a person who lives by the model, your life to benefit me. You exist to benefit me. At the end of the day, what I want is what I want. And I'm going to make sure that I get that. And when you don't give me what I want, I'm going to argue. I'm going to to be bitter. I'm going to gossip. I'm going to do everything I can because I want to be king. I want to be God of my own life. And this is the world that we live in. There's a lot of people broken as a result. But the city of God is, is, is not that way. And the city of God The people of God, they're not concerned about their their own glory. They're not concerned about their own glory because their their life's goal is to make God famous. They don't want to be on top. And they're freed. They're freed from, from trying to find acceptance from the world. They're freed from trying to promote themselves. We are free in Christ. If you are a Christian, you are free from other people's opinions of you. Why? Because your identity is in Christ. You have been hidden with Christ. You have seen that God has accepted you and he loves you in spite of yourself. You you know that you have been justified by Christ as a result of his death on that cross, as a result of you looking to him and his sacrifice by faith. You are fully accepted. And you don't have to worry about trying to impress people or trying to please people. You don't have to worry about who likes you or who doesn't like you. You don't have to worry about trying to get all that you can get in this life because you know that the life to come is way better. And in the life to come, you will be celebrated. And you won't just be celebrated by man. You'll be celebrated by God. He will call you his faithful servant. So what does that mean? That means that I am free. You are free. We are free to live in Christ. We are free to not live self-centered lives. We do not have to promote ourselves. We do not have to push people to get to the top. We do not have to seek after our own pleasure and our own good apart from Christ because we know that true pleasure is found in Christ and we can live free from condemnation, free from guilt, free from shame because Jesus has died a death that we deserve and was resurrected. And he is who we identify with. Not our tribes. Him. 
Oh, how liberating that is for the people of God. That we don't have to live this life to store up our treasures in heaven, uh, our treasures on earth because we have treasures in heaven. God is saying you don't have to consume yourself with being rich and with getting an 82-inch plasma TV. You don't have to consume yourself with getting a Mercedes-Benz. Because what I have for you, eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man. You can't imagine. The Bible says that the streets, they're paved with gold. What is God saying? God is saying gold ain't nothing to me. We over here fighting and dying for gold. I've got so much gold, that's, that's concrete in heaven. The people who live in the city of God, who are citizens of God's kingdom, as a result of putting their faith and trust in Jesus, they live by the motto, my life to benefit you. Turn with me really quickly to the book of Hebrews. Let's go to the 11th chapter, and uh, let's look at verse 13. This is, this is how the, the people of old, we know that this is the faith chapter, and we see that the people of old lived this way. They lived this way, and as a result, they were able to do incredible things. Listen to this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were what? Strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. When talking about the the people of faith, and, and then he goes on in verse 23 to talk about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was born, he was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for his reward. The people of old were able to do radical things for Christ was able to be transformation in their generations because they did not see the wealth of Egypt as tempting because they had put their eyes on a reward that was promised. And I'm calling us as a church to put our eyes on that promised reward. I'm calling us as a church to to remind ourselves that we have been saved and we are now citizens of God, citizens of of heaven. We now belong to his kingdom and we should rebel against low expectations. We should rebel against low expectations. Most people expect us to do what we're doing now. Most people expect Christians to just come to church on Sunday and every now and then on Wednesday. Let's rebel against that. Let's show them that God has called us to do much more than that, that God has called us to transform this city, that God God has empowered us to live outside of ourselves, to live outside of of insecurity. God has given us an identity, and that identity is in Christ. He has given us a promise, 
And that promised land is to come. Let us put our faith and trust in that promised land. And let us say we will not be ordinary. We will not be an ordinary church. We will not be an ordinary people. We will be a sold out people for the one who sold himself out for us. Means we have to start believing big as a church. There's plenty of strip joints and liquor stores in Newburgh. We have to start believing that God is going to call us either to have an influence to shut those places down and buy them out or to save the ones who own them. But how is that going to happen? It's going to happen by the community seeing us as not just being in the community, but for the community. This community needs to know that we are not just pulling in on Sunday and pulling out and living our lives like everyone else. This community needs to see us in their community. They need to know that we are servants. When God saved us, he he saved us and he transformed us and he gave us new life, not so that we could just hold it to ourselves and, and live the best we can now and, and get to heaven and, and go to heaven on a nice, comfortable, king-sized bed. He saved us so that we would rush into heaven, saying, Lord, I have done all that you have asked me to do. I was a servant of yours. See, in the, the kingdom of man or the city of man, Self-glory is the ultimate goal, and the kingdom of God, the city of God, God's glory is the ultimate goal, and we are his servants. Our job is to make his infinite worth public. Our job is to make his infinite worth public, his glory public, and one of the ways we do that is by serving, by serving the community. It means there's going to be some times, man, when it floods or when it snows that we're going to have to get out there and get some shovels out and say, we're here to serve you. It means that we have to have an attitude that says, I want to know who lives in these houses down the street. So maybe I'm going to take a gift over there, bake some cookies for them. It means that this this city, Newburgh, these surrounding areas has to know that we actually care about the people who live in there and we just don't care about ourselves. It means that we partner with organizations that are making an impact in Louisville and doing things that we couldn't do on our own. And that's why we have one of those organizations here with us and they're going to present to us in a second. You know, that's the way Christianity grew. That's the way that it prospered. Rodney Starks, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, is is pretty much answering the question. He's a sociologist who who was wondering, how did Christianity become the number one religion in the world? How did it grow out of being a cult to being the most influential religion of all time? And he takes us back to the early centuries in Rome. And he, in his book, takes us back to the testimony of someone who was actually in Rome when a nasty plague hit that was horrible. And I just want to read to you really quickly, and then we'll, we'll conclude. I want to read to you the testimony of the Christians who were, uh, about the Christians who were in Rome. This was from an eyewitness, and he's explaining how horrible this plague was. It says, the doctors was quite incapable of treating the disease. People became afraid to visit anyone. 
And as a result, thousands of people died without no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses where all the inhabitants persisted, uh, perished, excuse me, to, to the lack of attention. Bodies of the dying was heaped one on top of the other. Half-dead creatures can be seen staggering about in the streets. The catastrophe was, was so overwhelming that people became indifferent to every rule of morality. Many pushed sufferers away, even their own dearest, often throwing them into the roads, heaping to avert contagion. So in the city, when a nasty plague hit, everybody thought about themselves, and they started mistreating the people who had the plague, throwing them into, to, into the city streets, hoping that they wouldn't become contagious, except for one group of people. And that was people who did not belong to this earthly city. This is the testimony of the Christians. Most Christians showed unfounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves, but thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick. They attended to their every need, ministering to them in crisis. And many departed their life serenely happy, for they were infected by their neighbors, and they cheerfully accepted pain. They lost their lives in this manner and many elders and ministers as well. The Christians, instead of running when everyone was running, the Christians, instead of taking their loved ones and throwing them in the street, the Christians stood there by faith and said, God has called us to be servants. Jesus said, who is the greatest among you? The greatest among you is the one who serves. That's the greatest among you. And these Christians took that on themselves. They said, you know what? What are we afraid of? What, what's going to happen to us? What's the worst thing that can happen to us? The worst thing that can happen to us is we die. And you know, for a Christian, that's not bondage, that's freedom. If we die, that means we get to wake up and see the face of Jesus. If we die, that means we get to go to the land of no more, the land where there is no more pain, where there is no more heartache, where there is no more bitterness, where there is no more brokenness. If we perish in the midst of serving people, what does that mean? And history teaches us that people, once the plague passed, they started asking a question, what are these Christians here for? Why in the world did they stay behind? Why in the world did they risk their lives? They risked their lives because they loved a man who lived and who died in their place. They risked their lives because they wanted everyone to experience the joy that he gives. They risked their lives because they understood that they were justified by faith. They risked their lives because they understood that nothing could separate them from the love of God. And I'm saying that if we stand up and be who God has called us to be and look through the eyes of God, even in the midst of Babylon, and declare war on Satan and say, Satan, you had me in Babylon. You had me living for myself. You had me trying to climb the ladder for myself. You had me looking at everybody saying your life is for me rather than my life is for you. You had me confused. You had me strung out. You had me drunk. You had me as a, as a lust-filled person. 
But Satan, I come to serve you. Notice today, you don't have me no more. Jesus has liberated me. Jesus has freed me. The Bible says that Jesus loves the city. Let me tell you how much Jesus loved the city. The Bible says that, that he was crucified, but he wasn't crucified in the city. He was crucified outside of the city, outside the city gates. He didn't want to bring a curse on the city. So God took him outside the city and he died in your place. He hung on an old rugged cross. He was treated as a common criminal. He was cursed and molested and beat. And he did it because he loved those in the city. Jesus is the ultimate example of greatness. He is the ultimate example of the ultimate leader. And guess how he led? He led with a cross on his back. He led on his knees as he washed his disciples' feet. He led by saying, my life for you. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for allowing us to be citizens, citizens of your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to live with a hope that says, Lord, you know the plans that you have for. You have come to give us an expected end, to give us welfare and not evil. You have a future for us, Father God. Help us to remember that nothing in this world can satisfy our deepest longings but you. And that instead of trying to climb the ladder to success, Lord, we need to be trying to climb a ladder to know you more. You are so refreshing, Father. You are so good, Father. Help us, Lord, to to see that we have been saved by grace, that we have been given the greatest gift that one could ever receive. Help us to give that gift away every day by serving our coworkers, by serving our husbands and our wives, by serving our friends and by serving this community, by saying our life for yours. In Jesus' name, amen.